the good news of Genesis. We are in the end of chapter 11 and uh, the first three verses, God willing, of chapter 12. So why don't you take a look at that, get there. It should be easy to find um, for those of you who are new to the Bible. Genesis is the first book. Matter of fact, the, the very term means beginnings. That helped um, as well along those lines. And the rest of it is just an issue of whether you can count. And if you can't do that, we'll pray for you and see what God has to do. Um, all right. We... Uh, I'm going to pick it up this, this morning in verse 10. So go ahead and read along with me. The cool thing is if you've been here since the beginning of this, you even look at genealogies and you go, oh, this could be really cool. And it always is. Okay, this is what it says. This is the genealogy of Shem. Shem was 100 years old. And he begot Adfaxad. So let's at least say the names once just for the fun of it. You know, okay, so back and forth. There we go. Shem. His name means name. There you go. What's your name? Name. There you go. He's 100 years old and you've got Arfaxad. Say Arfaxad. This one's a little bit more embarrassing. His, little, his name literally means he curses the breast. For, I, I, who names their child that? Um, two years after the flood. Tells you a little bit about at least what he was like as a baby. And he begot, after, and he begot a fox out Shem lived then 500 years and he begot other sons and daughters. Why does God even tell us that? Because what God tells us is that there's one specific family he's pointing out. He's got lots and lots of kids, but let me point out one specific one. The one who cursed the breast. Verse 12, a fox lived 35 years. We already noticed a big difference already there. And he begot Selach. Would you say Selach? Beautiful. His name means to shoot, to sprout, to shoot across is the idea like an arrow. And after he begot Salah, Arfaq Sad lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Salah then lived 30 years and he begot Khaber. Would you say Khaber? Very important name. His name Khaber means beyond and therefore Hebrew. Baraus, the name where we get the Hebrews from this guy, means one from beyond. And again, as it's been said before, when you talk about the whole thing in the Middle East, we've got a group of people calling themselves Palestinians. What their name means is foreigner. Uh, and they're arguing with people that call themselves Hebrews, which means one from beyond. So you have people from beyond and foreigners arguing over whose land is theirs. Uh, it's ironic. If God weren't intervening, neither one has claimed to it, to be honest. Verse 16. And again, he added the sons and daughters, the four and the threes. Heber lived 34 years and he begot Peleg. Did you say Peleg? Do you see a pirate when you need to read that name? I don't know, maybe it's just me. Ah, I'm Peleg. Um, his name, by the way, means dividing, for what it's worth. Uh, and, and there are reasons for that. And after he begot Peleg, Heber lived for 30 years and he begot sons and daughters. Peleg lived 30 years and he, and he begot Ru. Would you say Ru? Ru. Ru means friend, by the way. It's the same root as Ruth, our daughter. Ruth means friend. Um, what a great name. That's why we named our child that. Belek lived 209 years and begot sons and daughters. Who lived then 32 years and he begot Sarug. Do you say Sarug? Which means branch. After we begot Sarug, who lived then 207 years, he begot sons and daughters. Sarug lived 30 years and he begot Nahor. Would you say Nahor? Now, put a little extra phlegm in it and I'll tell you why in a moment. Nahor. Excellent. Because Nahor, for what it's worth, means uh, snorter. There you go. One who snorts. One who breathes heavy. So that's why I think, Nachor. You get the idea. So you get that. What's your name? Nachor. Why did they name? Oh, never mind. I know why they named you that. 
See his wife. Oh, hey, you're not kidding. After he begot Nachor, Sodog lived 200 years. He begot sons and daughters. Nachor lived 29 years and he begot Terah. Terah? Yeah. Important, obviously. Uh, and then Terah, for whatever name, means station in your position. Nachor lived 119 years. He begot sons and daughters. Now Terah lived 70 years and he begot three people. Abram, would you say Abram? Which means exalted father. Plays into everything, of course. Nachor. And what does Nachor mean again? <laughs> Yeah, it was too much of a clue, wasn't it? And Haran, and Haran, by the way, means mountain man. You're like kind of one of those people that's like, I want to call my son Haran. Haran, right up the mountain, what he did, and cut down a tree, Haran. So that's the genealogy of Tarah. Tarah begot Abram, Nachor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot. Would you say Lot? Lot, and Lot means covering, by the way. Um, Haran died before his father. What does that mean? That means that he died young, or at least younger than dad. Dear old dad didn't live as long. And now you've got a problem. You've got a brother with, um, who's died who has a son. His son's name again is covering his look. So someone has to take care of him, and therefore it appears as if dad took the responsibility. By the way, that happens a lot, doesn't it? Even around today. Um, it's, it, today actually doesn't happen as much with a parent dying as much as them getting caught into drugs. You see somebody in their, in their 50s or 60s, and you see them with a young child, and you kind of think, wow, did you adopt? What's the case? And they say, well, actually, it's our daughter. She's into drugs. We decided to take the child. Well, I mean, it's sort of, you just sort of grandparents. You know, I, I, my brother, who, by the way, is a grandparent, tells me that being a grandparent is God's way of rewarding you for not killing your children. Um, <laughs> But it just says that Haran died before his father in Terah then in the native land of Ur. Would you say Ur? Ur, Ur is, and by the way, means flame, fire. Who wants to live there? Um, in the Chaldeans, it's today, in, in essence, sort of the Gulf Coast where the Gulf War was years ago. It's sort of that area, the Sumerian culture basin. And, the, and Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. Would you say Sarai? This, by the way, should tell you something. Sarai means contentious, argumentative. Who marries a woman named that? By the way, for what it's worth, what it's worth, you take Sarai and you add to it God, or at least the shortened version of it, Elocha, Elohim, Eloch, or El. Sarai contends, argues El, and that's where you get Israel from. Sarai El argues with God, contends with God. That's the idea. Uh, and then you've got his brother. Remember, Snorter. And Snorter gets a wife, and boy, he gets, boy, she's just the opposite, because her, his wife's name is Milka. Would you say Milka? Milka. And Milka means cow. No, just kidding. It just worked really nicely. Um, Milka actually means queen. Like, Melech is um, the male for that, like king. Um, Melka is the, so you've got one girl, so, you know, the two boys walk in. Hey, we both got married, Dad. Awesome. Well, I'd like to introduce you to mine. Here's Queenie. Oh, that's really sweet. And here's likes to argue a lot. <laughs> wow, you married up, did you? And so, uh, with all of that, we and, 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 and I'm not going to develop this a whole lot because, to be honest, the point's going to be our next three verses where we're just about to dig into. And I'm so excited about how beautiful that text is. But it's imperative, though, that we at least cover a couple things in all of this. Ultimately, we're ending up with two guys with two wives at the end of all of this. What we're going to find from all of this is that one of them ha- seems to be having no problem having kids. The other one, on the other hand, is having no children. Um, we do get some series of, of ages, which basically then puts us and chases us down. Um, that puts us somewhere roughly right between three and 400 years after the flood, if you add all of these uh, times, 392 years, 352 years. Um, and, and, and it's very important that if we kind of look at that, it all depends on whether by the end of this, Terah becomes the father of all three of them at this age. Um, when you do the math of other texts, by the way, where it talks about when Abram left, 
how old he was. What it kind of gets the idea is that, that Terah became the dad at that age of at least one of these boys. Abram doesn't seem to be the oldest of them. However, in all of that, uh, it's imperative that, uh, that that he is, obviously is his dad. And, and the important aspect of it is the, conf- the conflict of those years becomes the difference of when Noah dies. Um, if Abram was born actually at that 70-year point, Abram would have actually been able to talk to Noah. What a wild thought is. It's more likely, by the way, that his dad was 130 when, this, um, when, when Abram was born, which plays a little bit into the text later. But, but with that, that means at least we're sure that dad could have actually sat down with Noah. And what would that have been like? To be able to sit down with a guy and go, tell me what the old world was like. Because he's the only guy, other than these three boys, Shem included, that could have told you what the world was like before it was completely covered. When the continents were all one, before water ever fell from the sky, when water just kind of came up like a... I mean, wouldn't you want to talk to someone like that and kind of get a little bit of that? And just, what was that like? Uh, in all of that, we haven't even prayed to begin the text. But then let's at least look at the next three verses, because that's really important as we kind of get into our text then. And it tells us this, this then. Again, where does it say the father of Issachar? Sarah was barren. She had no child. Sarah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, Abram's wife. And they went out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go towards Canaan, which, by the way, instead of going straight across due west, they kind of head up north, and they turn a trip into about 1,400 miles. And uh, again, without cars. To go into the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelled there, which is in the area of Syria, on our way down. Uh, towards the area of Iran, Iraq. And so the days of Terah were 205 years until I died in Haran. And then the Lord, um, and now the Lord said to Abram, get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great. You shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Please pray with me. Lord, I want to thank you for the privilege it is to open your word. Oh, what an amazing gift. That we would be able to sit in this room safe. Nobody's checking the door or windows for finding somebody that could catch us and tell some authority that we're doing something illegal and us all being tortured and imprisoned. We're so comfortable and safe here. And yet, that puts us in a place of great danger. We recognize, Lord, in honesty, that comfort can be one of our greatest foes. Sometimes in that comfort, we forget the cost that you, pay, that you paid because our faith comes so easy. Our religion comes so inexpensively. But I pray today that we would hear your call in every one of our lives. The power of your Holy Spirit, light me up to do what you intend. Make your word presented as alive as it is. And Lord, that we would interface with you. And today would be the day where we are forever changed. Today. So redeem every second, every second. Immerse me that you would appear. And Lord, that our hearts would be settled upon you now. May we have the most fun we've ever had in your word now. In Jesus' name. Amen.
I'll say this morning, or afternoon, I suppose, um, like I would any time, please don't just believe me, no, just assume it's true as I say, so search the scriptures, that the Bible always uh, have the final say. Uh, it's important to recognize that the book of Genesis covers roughly somewhere right around 2,000 years or so. Uh, in all that, there's 50 chapters in it, for whatever it's worth. Uh, and yet, in all of that, there are going to be 20 different generations that have been listed. We saw 10 generations, if you remember, from Abram, then all the way down to Noah. And then, um, ultimately, after Noah, we have the three sons, and then we found that we chased Noah. That was our first ten. And then we chased Noah. Then again, all the way down to where we're at here with these three sons. One now who has passed away. And these other two boys. And, and so there's 20 generations that will be covered. There will be more than that because ultimately Abram will have a son who will have a son. who will have 12 kids. 12 boys. And, and all of that will be in essence, listed out in all of this book, this 50-chapter book we call Genesis, or beginnings, Barashit in the Hebrew, because it means in the beginning, the first word in the text. And yet, in all of that, nearly a third of our entire text in this whole book is dedicated to this guy. Well, that tells me an awful lot. And, and, and for what it's worth, one of the reasons I truly believe that is because of what God calls him. In James 2.23, for what it's worth, in Second Chronicles 20, verse 7, and in Isaiah 41 as well, Verse 8, God calls him his friend. I mean, there are different people in Scripture that you find that God, God gives you a title, a nickname. Uh, he hangs a shingle over you. I mean, there, obviously there's the betrayer. Who wants that one? Perfectly none of you. There, in essence, we can, we can sort of hang the shingle, the doubter over Thomas. The evangelist for Philip in the book of Acts. But I tell you, when I read some of these people, Abram just said, he's, he's my friend. And, and there are certain things, I don't know about you, maybe I'm just really childlike in this, maybe childish, you can debate on that. But I, I, I genuinely believe if I read these things that I, I ask, all right, Lord, can I, can I be that too, please? Can I get in line for that one? And, and I realize that when God lists up these people that give so much press, for instance, David, who's obviously somebody with a tremendous amount of passion that gets in some pretty bad places and gets him in a lot of trouble. And yet God will call him a man after my own heart. And, and I've I got to be honest with you, I'm just one of those kind of people. I've never been the kind of person that believed I couldn't do it. I think I was raised that way. And, I, and that's become really helpful in my approach to Scripture. I mean, if I were to watch a band on TV when I was a kid, I did it as homework. I thought, oh, well, we can be... You know, I mean, I wasn't just the classic guitarist that always just said I could do it better because I'm a guitarist, and that's what we all say. But I'm like, well, how do I get better than that? Tell me what's impossible and show me how to put something impossible for me, and then let's... And then uh, all of that came to the point where you get saved. I got saved at 19, and, and, and God just sort of flipped the switch on that and said, well, here's the cool part. All of that stuff I did anyways, and clearly he gets the glory for it. And then I turn around and say, all right, well, with that in mind now, what can't be done? And God's like, sin. I'm like, cool. That's, I have no interest in that now anymore. anyway, so well, what do you want to do? And so I, I'm not one that looks at an empty, barren space and think, we could put a little hut here. I'm that kind of thinks, well, this is, there's a city that needs to be be here. And when people say, well, how many people do you expect to see God save in London? I think all of them. That's what I expect. The gospel is still the power of salvation for any believer. And why not? Why not lay it out that way? And, and so, of course, the problem is you come here and you have people that will be like, oh, bless your heart. You, you, know, you haven't been here long, have you? You don't want you get chipped down in time. And, of course, that's the same thing we were met with back in the Central Coast. And it's really fun to be able to kind of walk out of that and just say, well, God just saved so many people and did so much crazy stuff that you just go, oh, I can't wait for the next one. And, and I look at that and I think, all right, God, what would it really be like to be your friend? And what would it really be like to 
to be a man after your own heart. And, and I might just say, let me lay this out and we'll get into our text. That when I look at David, and, and by the way, who's one of my, I mean, I, I just relate to him in so many ways. I mean, the, the, the young, vibrant, take on the giant kind of guy. And then the old Vegas David, you know, that sort of fat and lethargic that has to be rescued by Abishai. Because he's been out of the battlefield too long. That's one of the reasons how I wound up here was because I just never wanted to be that. I'd rather die in battle. And I've learned this about David and myself. The battlefield's a much safer place to be with the Lord than being in the palace by yourself. It'll always be the case. And here we are more likely to be in a palace than on the battlefield in a room like this if we're not careful. Uh, and then I realized with David, if, if I really was after your heart, I, this, the first thing is I would take what's important to you and I would make it important to me. And that's really where it starts. And I'm like, all right, God, can I be that? I, I want to chase after you that way. And then I look at this and I think, well, what did Abram do that was so amazing that God said this was my friend? And to be honest, all he really did was he... he obeyed he believed and he obeyed i mean that was it god said you want to go with me somewhere and abram's like okay and, and there, i'm not going to give you a lot of details i'm not going to i'm not going to tell you um step two until i give you step one are you okay with that and we just don't find a tremendous amount of argument which maybe the lord is just kind not to record or maybe there just wasn't and for a guy that is married to contentious i think that adds a real radical element to this not because i'm married to a contentious woman because i'm not and yet i still feel like what would it be like if the lord told me something and i had to tell my wife how illogical the whole thing was and she's going to have to ask well, what's your five-year plan what did he say next who is he what and then i'm going <laughs> this is the only detail i have he said go where? He said he'll show me later. And she's, you know, she's thinking, can you sleep on another night? I'm not going to feed you pizza before you sleep tonight. You know, and, 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 I, and I start to think as I look at this, and, and, and I look at these first few verses as I work up to chapter 12. And if I could just put it in the simplest sense, God had his family under surveillance from the flood. Do you aware of that? I was like, there was no point where this guy just kind of stumbled upon Abram and went, you know, this guy's got a lot of potential. Let's see what we can do with him. Let's try him out, you guys. Okay, let's throw out a kind of cockamamie, crazy, cryptic call and see what he does. I mean, he's like from the, he just knew. He knew when there are these guys that are named Curse the Breast. And I mean, it isn't like that one. Oh, well, that's, well, we should follow that line just because I mean, you think of all these things and you see this and he's like, look at, you know, I, I knew how this was going to lead up to this moment. And, I, and, and there's so much in scripture where you just find how God is just, before the call even happens, how God had been prepping you for it for so long and you just ignorantly go about life because it's an ordinary day to you, but all of it's prep work. And I just can't help but think for a moment of David, as David will spend half of his life fleeing before he becomes king. Fleeing from, from Saul, who, by the way, here's, here's David living like born, running from everything that's sort of in government, because everywhere he goes, it's like Saul's men are positioned in place. And yet in all of that, here is David, and then he flees. But the crazy part was, is he just spent the last 15 years following sheep in the fields of Judah. And, and what he has to know is, I mean, if you were a shepherd, what you need to know is where are the watering holes? Where is the grass? Where is it safe to hide the sheep from wolves? And that's what you learn as a shepherd. So for 15 years, you'd think, man, I just... He, by the way, God says, I took you from following the sheep, which means you have to watch where you step a lot if you're following the sheep, right? I mean, and, and by the way, that's part of what you do as a pastor is you follow the sheep and you, you can step in it quite easily if you're not careful. And, and you're, you know, you're walking, okay, well, wait a minute. Okay, notice there's a good place. There's a safe place. 
there's a cave to, for the sheep to, and all that. And then Saul wants to kill him. And where does David flee to? The very fields where for 15 years he grew up around. Saul doesn't know those fields, but David knows every hiding place, every watering hole, every safe cave. And I think how God had prepared him. He had no idea when he was following sheep that one day he was like, oh, wow, hey, guys, I know this place. It's around the corner. I don't know about it. Well, you haven't been following sheep for 15 years. Follow me. And just how radical that is. And so let's put things into this text for a moment. It was an ordinary day. It was an ordinary day for a guy that's 75 years old. 75 years now, he's been in a situation where he woke up. We don't know how long he's been married to this woman. For a period of time, he's been married to this woman. And he looks over at her again and he sees that same. It's another day without a baby. Now understand, this is a culture where you need to have an heir and a spare. It's fundamental. I mean, because your family name is very, very important. Your family occupation, your family name, and your family honor are everything. And as a result of that, you've already been in a situation where mountain man somehow got lost in the mountains and he never made it back in his 17 days and he's dead. And so this guy's over with, and one of your brothers is done, and his son is there, and you're kind of helping take care of him, but you don't have any kids of your own. You've got your other brother married to the queen, queenie, and then there's you with contentious, and you wake up again, and it's another day, and it's another day with the average what you do. So you wake up, and you, you know, you have that morning battle that happens every morning where your body says gravity and your mind says, but duty. And in somewhere you compromise in the middle of it all where your body still is half asleep as you pull yourself out of bed and you're still dragging your knuckles on the carpet on your way into the bathroom, you know, or maybe I'm just being too divulging here. And, you know, you know and then you kind of get into the shower and you open up the same closet, look at the same wardrobe and pick something from it, sometimes blindly, and you just hope it matches and your family doesn't point and laugh and then into the shower, hopefully not with clothes and still, and you come out and you're okay and you're putting everything on and it's the same old whatever and you walk out the same and you take the same bus number to the same spot to do the same whatever and you think tonight I'm probably going to go to bed and that same guy that woke up is going to lay his head on the pillow in the same way and and you have no idea that this morning you woke up with an ordinary mundane ordinary day and you went to sleep a king you went to sleep a father of nations for which the entire world will look and go, that guy. Even liars will say they belong to him. And, and how crazy all of that is. And you think, you didn't know that. It was an ordinary day. It was an ordinary day like any other day where it was just, you know, this is okay. Maybe it's a little fresh something. Okay, I'll try something different. I'll order the latte with extra sprinkles or whatever, you know. And, and this, is the, what she, this is what varies your day. And in, you have no idea that somewhere in it, boom, God blindsides you with somebody and goes, you know, I've been waiting for this moment from the beginning of eternity. You have no idea I have this blessing parked outside I'm about to run you over with that is going to transform the rest of your life. For 75 years, it's been, you get your stuff, you develop it, you've got your house, you know where the things are hung. You could probably walk through a good portion of it in your sleep or at least in the dark because it's just life. And somewhere down the line, something strange happens, God speaks. But I want to add something to it just to kind of make it even more fun and complicated. If we get to the last chapter of the book of Joshua, when he reviews this whole story, he tells us something important about this guy, his dad, Terah. What he says is that Terry was an idol worshiper. Now, why is that so important? First of all, there's a whole radical amount of places to go with it, but at least let me lay this out in the simplest sense. Abraham did not, was not raised in a godly family who are calling on the name of the Lord, 
And, you know, it wasn't like God was looking, to be honest, to find a house that had stained glass on the outside. I played church or organ music in the beginning of the day that, you know, sort of served holy water with breakfast, you know. And this was a guy, and Dad got up and he worshipped his, his idols, and that was Abram's life somewhere in it. We don't read that Abram was anywhere different in all of it. And, and, and I'll develop that as we go through this gorgeous book of Genesis, that there are four basic gods that people worship in every culture where there's, where there's some of polytheism and how each one is sort of dedicated to specific things. And how, by the way, for what it's worth, if you're a Bible student, I pray you are, that you'll find that there are four altars that Abram will build and each one ultimately, Abram will have to reconcile that our God is the real God and the only God of all of those things. And that becomes the journey, not just of Abram, but of every one of us. That place where you realize, God, you really are the God of protection and of provision and of production and of pleasure. And the moment that I don't get that through my head, I preach to the rest of the world that God's for saving and the world's for fun. And I think the church has done a dexterous job of teaching that to the rest of the world. And so people are like, well, then let's get out our fun while we can and let's just hope that I don't die quick so that I can kind of get right with God on my deathbed and then I can kind of, I'll cheat it and get, cheat the system and get the best of both worlds. And you're like, you are ripping yourself off. And we're teaching people that by saying, well, you know what? You know, we're, we're going to have a, we got a two hour prayer meeting and hope there better be cookies and coffee. And then, but on the other side of it, then we'll hit the pub and we'll kind of get on our, and you kind of think, wow, okay, even in your tone, I've just learned where things are. And, and, and for what it's worth, as we get into this text, it's an ordinary day where all of a sudden there's this horrible thing for us as Christians that makes this even more profound. And that is that Jesus told us in John 10 that we would have abundant life. And that life would be more abundant, not just life, but life abundant. And so we know that that exists somehow in theory, and somehow it's in some form of esoteric compartment in our head, theoretical and doctrinal. And yet, there's something really damning about the fact that our life is really monotonous, mundane, and ordinary. When, when, how can it be so ordinary when Jesus said abundant life? This can't be abundant life. I'm getting up, I'm robotically going through my day, and I'm dying the same. I'm going to die on this pillow the same way that I was raised on it. And, and, and uh, this is not abundant life. And, and, and I realize in this, there is this radical call that's put on this man that I don't think should be any different from any one of us. And, and he becomes a father of faith. And I think I want to be a father of faith. Do you want to be a father of faith? I mean, I want to be the kind of person that, that generation after generation looks. And, and it isn't like they have like the, you know, Pastor Tony Appreciation Pastors Conference. I really just want to be able to have people say, you know, one thing I know about this guy, he may be human, but he loves his God. He loves the word. He loves his family. And he is hot and passionate pursuit of those things. And and he trusts he trusts this God he trusts him, and and in all of this God kind of walks us through to chapter twelve with the simple idea that I've been following this family since Noah I mean actually since Adam but we've been waiting for a redeemer to come and as I'm watching all of this happen he's like there's this guy there's this guy there's this guy I mean he's thirty five thirty four twenty nine years and he has this kid and oh he's got all these other kids and it isn't like they're not important I know all their names but but this is the one I want you to watch and again it's not like God's writing the book with that in mind it's like he's directing a, a show in other words here's all this events taking place but the director says now camera angle on this because this is where I want you to watch. 
Oh, there's all this other stuff happening, but here's where you need to watch because for the plot of what I want to develop, there's, this is what you need to be seeing. And you see this guy was this kid, was this kid, was this kid, was this kid. And in 10 generations down, we find this guy and he's got three sons just like, well, that's interesting. That was kind of like Noah had his three sons and then something radical happened. God changed the entire world. Listen, he changed the entire world. And now he goes, I've got 10 more generations. Here's three more guys and I'm going to change the entire world. Through a guy that we have no information on other than the fact that he's got a dead brother who's got a son that he's trying to watch after to some degree and another brother who married Queenie. And then in verse 1, now here it is. Chapter 12. The Lord said to Abram, we don't read how. We don't read what rattled, what didn't. We don't read if ducks flew, if God formed the writing in the sky. Or if he just spoke to us, sorry. And if it was important, God would have told us. And to be honest, if God had told us how it was that he spoke to Abram, we would disqualify other ways that God might speak to you. God knows how to speak. Might I just dare say, God knows how to speak fluent you. Some people, it's like, I counted 16 circumstances and they all led up to the same conclusion. I'm not necessarily a circumstance-led kind of guy, but there are other people that are. And God's like, well, if that's what it takes, that's the way I'll speak, if that's what it is. I actually love to get quiet with the Lord and sit and God goes, hey, and he plays peripathetic with me. So, if you were to adopt, hypothetically, why would you? Someone somewhere wouldn't hear about you? Okay. End of conversation. Two weeks later, so, where where would that be? Well, that would have to be either a Muslim or a communist country. Fair enough. End of conversation. And you know when God speaks little like that sometimes, it's like you got two weeks of going, ooh, I wonder what that means. So where would that be? I'm on my way to a Chinese Christian fellowship meeting. And you've seen the results of that. But he just spoke to Abram. And is what he says. Go. Now, I want you to recognize God didn't make this very complex for a reason. There's really nothing very, very... Profoundly difficult about that word, is it? It just brings up a whole lot of questions. Go from what to where? For what it's worth, the word go is used 136 verses in Scripture. The word stay is used 53. The word fail, the reason why I would be more apt not to go, is used 52. The term be still is used 8. The term follow me is used 29. Which means if I add all those together, we basically have about the same amount. If I have follow me and go, it's going to be infinitely more, or at least considerably more, than stay and fall and be still. He does call us to be still. But I've learned he calls me to be still as I go. He tells me to leave on 106 verses. But he promises in 428 different verses, in one manner or another, that he'll be with me. 428. The problem is anytime God calls me to go, or you go anywhere, there's a risk. The risk is what you leave. The risk is what you'll encounter on the way. And the risk is where you'll wind up. Isn't that true? So God says, go. And I want to ask you, before we even develop this to a, previous, to a moment, are you willing to pray with me that God would be willing to tell you that you would hear him without prejudice today, what he says? 
His leading is integral, is integral. He calls me to leave. This particular text, one of the reasons I'm so in love with it is because this was the beginning of the message I shared. Not what I'm going to be sharing with you now, but this was the beginning of the text that I shared the day that I told a fellowship in California on four different services that I would be leaving to come here to see your face. I had no idea it would be your face I would see. I'm so thankful. And this is what he says. Here's the risk. Get out of your country, your family, your father's house. Your country, for what it's worth, might I just suggest to you your identity. One of the things you are going to have to leave is your identity. As a matter of fact, for what it's worth, in 17 different verses, Jesus will be called Jesus of Nazareth. Why? Because one of the two ways you identify a person back then is where they came from. And Jesus being from Nazareth would be pretty much an insult because as we recognize in Nathaniel and Philip's conversation, could anything come from there? It doesn't have a very high reputation. It's just basically a squat. There's not very many people that live there. It's not even a village in the sight of many. And so people are like, it'd be like saying, oh, by the way, the Savior of the world is Jesus of nowhere. And, and that's kind of the concept. But you're recognized by that. And, where, and by the way, where you come from, where your land is, there's a lot that's dictated by it. The way that you process things, whether you're a people or relationship-oriented person or a task-oriented person, whether or not, by the way, you can be patient, whether you can handle traffic or can handle traffic, your particular tastes in food, your particular schedule for the day in regards to when you would go to sleep or when you would get up. The idea that you nap in the afternoon until I got older, that really sounded like punishment. As you get older, you realize a nap's kind of a reward now, not a, you know, wow, you know, I want to rock and roll for part of the night and take a nap all day. And, you know, and you get this idea, wow, but then you guys, you guys have dinner at nine? That's really strange. I'm putting my kids to bed and I'm trying to give them fish sticks. How does that work? You know, and it's, I mean, there's so many radical things that come with it. The manner in which you speak. I mean, in America, there's an awful lot you can learn by the fact that it's like, oh, well, he's American, but there's so many different ways that, ha, how are you doing? Oh, bless your heart, sweetheart. Now, you clearly not from Chicago when you talk like that. And you're like, hey, stop it. Hey. And you realize that guy's not from Tennessee. That where you come from is pretty radically dictating in so much of your personality, the way you process things, the way you look at what success is. I mean, my entire world gets wrapped up in some way or another in the way I got steeped into this moment of where I came from. And God says, I've got a brand new identity for you. And you could say, and hear me out, hear me out on this. For us to ask him what is genuinely us coming to a bargaining table to try to decide whether or not his offer is better than what we have. Think about it. The moment I'm saying to God, well, what do you have instead? I'm already debating on whether or not what he has is going to be better. As if somehow God is going to be like, well, should I sweeten the deal? Do you really think that I'm haggling with God? Oh, come on. Can you add a little bit of prosperity? Or can you add a little bit more people liking me? Or more talent? Or I mean, you think about it. But, but we don't find a great deal of argument here. As if what God does is he says, look it, get out of who you are. Because I've got a new person to make you. And, and, and he was like, cool. Now, that's a risk. And I'll tell you why. Whether you like it or not, you like you. I like me. Now, I don't like everything about me. And the reason I come to the Lord is because I like me enough that I want the other parts I don't like off of me. You know, God, this walk would be great if we could shed about 50 pretty ugly pounds out of this thing. 
You know, and I'm sure underneath that, there's this buff Christian guy spiritually that's going to look pretty sharp. And God's like, no, actually, this is a redo. You know, it isn't like I come and go, God, I've actually spent some time on my iPod, and I actually have an iPad, and I have like 16 different things I think you could change. Maybe you'll probably have a couple more, but because I've been holy and praying, I've got 16. And, and once we, and we're going to, this is it, right? This is pretty much it. And God's like, Wow, that's really a sweet little list of changing the wallpaper and I'm tearing the house down. You're like, tearing the house down? Excuse me, I didn't say anything about tearing the house down. And, and, and listen, in this, God's like, look, are you willing to risk this? Because one of the, there's four things I'm going to have to leave, and one of them is my identity. And by the way, I'm just going to call it, can I just, well, I'm not even going to take a vote on it. I'm just going to be as blunt as I possibly can. This is my biggest problem with homosexuality. I mean, granted, God calls it a sin in Scripture, as He does a million other things. And I think that a church that focuses on that and doesn't focus on the problem with divorce and all kinds of other you know, sexual rampant misbehavior in, in, in the church, I think is really being stupid. And pardon me just for saying that, because God puts it all on the same list, and He never just points it up. He just looks at, here's a whole list of things that people who make this their life and their idol will not inherit the kingdom of God. And people go, hey, the, the biggest problem I have, to be honest, is in the culture that's been developed around it, which God promised would happen, is that people are like, look at you just can't touch this, God. I'll become a Christian as long as this doesn't get touched. And anyone who does that on any level, on anything, has already made an idol and said, God, I'll take you as long as I don't have to get rid of this idol. And you know what the problem is? If I look at it that way, I'm a lot more guilty than I would have been otherwise. I think we all came in there and said, you know what? All right, just don't touch my cool. Don't touch my vibe. Don't touch my hair. Um, you know, don't, don't touch my brains or my ability to think or my social prowess. Don't touch my talents. Don't touch my athletic ability. Don't touch how smart I am. Don't mess with all of those things. And God goes, you know, the most important thing to me is your relationship with me. And I will make you stupid if that's what it takes for you to follow me. Now, I'm not saying you have to be stupid to follow him. The crazy thing is he would make you dumber to make you more brilliant if that makes any sense. I will break your legs if that's what it means. If you'd rather, you know, because I'd rather have you loving me in a wheelchair than, than you running away from me the whole time. And some of us, our whole testimony is that. It's like we have like just touched hip after touched hip after touched hip story where it's like God's like, are you, are you tired of this? Because the most important thing isn't what job you have or, or what shirt you wear today or whatever. The biggest thing is I want, I want a relationship, a real relationship with you. And in order to have, the, to have that happen, really, to be honest, I am not going to be a moon that orbits your world. I am genuinely going to ask. You're going to have to let me become the center of your universe. And that will never happen until you let me, hack, let me actually at your identity to rebuild it. Are you willing to leave that? Second thing, for what it's worth, and this says your family. And uh, it's actually my oldest daughter that says, you know what, Dad, it's like your destiny. Because when you talk to your family, they, you know, I've heard it say, God loves you very much, and Pastor Tony has a wonderful plan for your life. Or, you know, your mom has a wonderful plan for your life. And the idea is kind of simple. Well, you know, you are really smart. You should be a doctor. Or, you know what, you know, there are places around uh, where we came from where it's like, what, you're 16 and you're still not married with four kids? What's wrong with you? You know, and, and praise God, we weren't from there. But I, but I realized part of leaving your family, to be honest, is leaving your destiny. What has already been sort of pre-programmed before this point? And, you know, there are some people where it's like, you know, well, Daddy, and I know that you've always had your plan for me to go to college. Um, but I really believe that God's calling me to the mission field. And for some people, they look at you and think, well, whatever, how, what, where do we go wrong? Even parents that love the Lord will go, you know, but we kind of thought that God would be okay as long as you made something of yourself. 
you know, or that whole don't go overboard kind of talk that someone will tell you. In other words, I, let me just say it again the way I would, that I think in my small world. The world doesn't have a problem with you becoming a Christian until you become a real one. Because when you really become a real one, most people are going to hate it, including those who aren't interested in being one themselves. And I think, Mom, my family's also part of my identity, like Simon Barjona. He's the son of Jonah. But then my father's house. And that's my security. Because you know that, oh, you can always rest on that. I mean, if this thing fails, I mean, we come here and we're going to preach Jesus. And the, one of the benefits I have is I don't have that to fall back on. I don't have a mom and dad somewhere that I can kind of call and say, hey, things didn't really work out. Can you bail me out? But God's like, look at, I don't want, I don't want this to be your case. I don't want you always to have a back door in this thing. And I mean, if God just puts it simple, look at when it comes to ministry, there is no reverse on this vehicle. There's just forward. That's all there is. And you watch this radical sort of depression that hits somebody that kind of steps in, they get in the car, they step this thing in and they go like, don't worry. There's always this in this, this whole world. I, I hit pause, nothing's going to change. I'm going to go to this place, and when I'm done, I'm going to go back a couple years, and nobody got older, nothing happened. My favorite restaurant still serves the same thing at the same price, the same way on the same day. And then you get back, and it's like, where's my favorite restaurant? And how did you get married and have kids? And you know, and, and, and then they're like, I hate life. And it's like somewhere you thought you could go backwards. And God's like, well, how does that work? The world only spins in one direction. And, and, and he looks at this and he goes, look, at, you're just going to need to leave your security behind because you, in the whole point, now hear me out in all of this, is that God doesn't just ever just call me to leave anything because though it's integral for me to leave, he always calls me and says, look, at, we're trading everything. I'm trading, you are leaving the identity that you know because I've got a new one for you. You are leaving the destiny that you once knew where you were going to make something great on earth and you're going to trade it. And, and I guarantee you, anytime you come to the, to the table of the Lord, you are trading up, beloved. There is no trading down with him and just you just because of the value system that's been tweaked because we've been steeped in the world we're in we cannot know that at first then god lifts us over the overcast and we see a horizon that's so much more grand and broad and grandiose and god says this is where eternity is and and this eternity everything you do is going to make a difference here versus this little world it's sort of like you can spend everything in your hotel room you've got for a week i'll give you an unlimited but god's like but you're gonna have to leave it in the hotel room I go, how about the permanent address? Because that's what we're investing in here. And then, and I look at all of this, and then here's the best part, is the fourth one he tells us, to a land I will show you. Man, I would love to, I, we could be here for six hours. I won't for the love of you. I, I would for the love of you. But at least I want to say this. When it says, to the land that I will show you, can I just put it as raw as I can? As much as God will tell me to leave my identity and my destiny, my security, God will tell me to leave my sanity in the world, the sanity that's defined by the world, because this is the part that shuts down so much ministry, is that you're going to talk to somebody that you love and respect, and they're going to go, well, logically. And we're not saying biblically. We're talking about logically. Now, is the Bible always logical? No, to be honest, if everything fit within your small logic, this would be a really tiny book. And the bottom line is, my God's so much bigger than all of that. That's the beauty of it all. If God was so tiny as to be fully understood, he wouldn't be big enough to solve every one of my problems because there are many of my problems that are beyond my comprehension. And I'm so thankful that God is. And the heavens of heavens can't contain him. And all of a sudden, God's like, look it, I'm going to cause you to do something that's going to look, in essence, if you will, weird at nicest and insane otherwise. Now, I'm not telling you that anytime you have some crazy thought that it must be the Lord because of that. But the moment that you have to turn to somebody who doesn't know the Lord and you know that they're actually out of their care for you, look with this look of shock and horror, but you're confident the Lord said it. 
then you're actually walking in Abe's sandals for a minute. Because the first person he's going to have to tell, I assume, is going to either be dad, who worships idols, or wife, whose name is argues a lot. So who do you pick first? And you have to go, um, and you know what this is like if you have such a father. Like, Dad, I, can, I, can I tell you a couple of things? Sure, son. Um, God spoke to me. The Lord. Well, which one? I mean, this one? The kind of chubby one? The one we light candles to? Or the one we do dancing around? Um, I'm not really sure. Well, what's his name? Oh, he really didn't say. Well, what did he say? He said, I need to go. When? Uh, I really don't know. Probably now is good, I guess. Um, well, well where, where are you going? Well, he said he'd show me. What, well, when was he going to show you before you left? Well, I, I, he didn't say. So let me get this straight. You're really not sure who he is, where he came from, what he's really telling you. All he just said really was go, and, and that's it. And you're like, yeah. And if you could actually just peel back it and undo the filter that a father would say at that moment, he'd be going, you're insane! What's wrong with you? Didn't I raise you better than this? You're like, well, you raised me to actually go for it, and I'm, I'm, I'm going for it. Well, but go for it reasonably. What's your five-year plan? Don't know. What's your backup plan? I don't know. Good. Well, Dad, I'll let you ruminate on that. I'm going to go talk to argues a lot. Honey, um, I, um, God, the Lord talked to me. Yeah, isn't that exciting? He said, yeah, um, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm, that one, um, the one that says go. And yeah, we're going. Today? I um probably soon. Yeah, we should. You want to pack? Not really. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I'm not even sure if it's going to be hot or cold. So you might want to bring both. Winter, um, and, winter and summer and clothes. And I'm not even sure what the fashion is. So you might want to. And I. And the good news, at least at this moment, is we don't have kids to worry about, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But we're going. We're, we're going to go. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, think about how bizarre this is. Because we meet through and we're like, yeah, 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 that's kind of cool, all right, neato. But this, this is insane. I mean, this guy just woke up, uh, used the same soap, put on the same clothes, and God went, and in the middle of it all and said, but now let's talk about the other side of it. Because God never, listen, 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 God never calls me to leave without calling me to cleave. And that's the beauty of it, is that, see, the reason why God didn't say, this is the place I'm calling you to and here's your five-year plan, is because if you're anything like any other human being on the planet, that would mean five years without talking to him. And God knows this. See, God never tells me step two before step one. And the reason is because if he told me step two and step one, I wouldn't talk to him until I needed step three. But the most important thing for the Lord is my walk with him, my relationship with him. And God knows that. So he knows how to only tell me sufficient for the day is its own trouble, so stop worrying about tomorrow. Well, what if? God says, look, you're going to kill yourself with those what ifs. Am I not the Lord of tomorrow to stop freaking out over it? But I don't have the details on tomorrow. And therefore, you don't have control of tomorrow. You are aware of that, right? Well, then what's going to have to happen? You're going to have to wake up and seek me again. God's like, I, I like that. I, I like having a morning appointment with you while you before you get out of bed. 
where you're like, Lord, I have no idea what I'm doing. And God's like, well, this is the first thing we've agreed on in a long time. But you guys listen, hear me, because he's going to travel over 1,400 miles. And I realize what I'm called to cleave to is his promises and not just cleave to someone, something. But he promises me and he actually promises me some things, to be honest. I don't know which one of these sticks like a burr into your sock of your soul, but I can tell you which one does for me. And, and he just says this, verse 2, it says, I'm going to, first of all, I'm going to make you a great nation. And the idea in its simplest sense is I'm going to make you ridiculously fruitful. But for a guy that's named Exalted Father that's now 75 with no children, this is a bit ironic, you know? I mean, this is like saying, what's your name, Harry? Well, you've been bald since birth. This is a little strange, isn't it? And you're like, yeah, I know, it's ironic. But don't worry, I'll get a toupee for my whole body someday. You know, and it's like, well, you know, you're, you're exalted father. Way to go. You're like, you know, let's cheer for dear old dad with no kids. But I'm going to make you ridiculously fruitful. And the opposite, by the way, might I just say the opposite of fruitfulness is futility. And one thing that we're going to learn throughout all of Scripture is the moment you walk away from the one that is the true vine, your entire life will be about more work with more futility. It will be no productivity and excess work in, re- in regards to it. And, and Solomon such a great example. He's like, the more I walked away from the Lord, the harder I tried and the less I got out of it. And you know, you, you know what that's like, where it's like you, you put God as the last thing on your day instead of the first fruits, and then all of a sudden you don't have time for Him. And yet I put Him as the first thing on a day where infinitely more things are response, I'm responsible for. And God says, all right, now, wow, everything's done before dinner. That's strange. I can play with my kids all night. God's like, how many days do we have to do this before you actually realize this is the way it works? I mean, isn't it true that you can watch that happen over and over and over again and still forget about it on those days? You're like, ooh, this is a big deal. I better get to this first. And God goes, when has that ever worked with you? And I really, and listen, hear me, hear me, please, on this. God wants us to be fruitful. He doesn't want us living futile, futile lives. He wants the world living futile lives. So if they hate it so much, they'll cry out to him. We should be the opposite of that. And I want to make you that. Maybe that's the thing for you. Maybe this is. It says, I'll bless you. And I think, well, am I not blessed enough? I've got stuff. Obviously, Abram's going to leave a lot of stuff. He's going to leave a big herd of people, and, and a, or at least, I'm sorry, a big herd of animals and a handful of people. And yet God says, look, at you. Have, here's the problem. You have no idea what real blessing is because in your small world right now, this is you're living large in your small world. I was born and raised in the south side of Chicago. And in the area that we lived, I mean, it was concrete for floors. It was, I mean, just that's kind of the world you live in. And people get shot and killed pretty regularly. As a matter of fact, we've talked about it. Um, of the however many umpteen kids that were on our block, three of them lived through their teen years. And a fourth is debatable, Stacy Bajorgo, because he's still, he's still alive. But he yells at himself in his reflection in a storefront window. So you can decide where he's gone with that. I mean, he... Stacy was a big guy. He stuck his fist through a Ford van door back when they made him out of steel. And Stacy was a big guy. And now he's a big guy that's much more of a threat. And, and yet, I mean, that was, that was the world. And, and to live large is what there? To survive? To not have a gang want to kill you? And I, I knew there was a guy down the street from us that was dragged out of his house and beat to death with a shovel in front of his family. And, and, that, and the thing is, a lot like here... People just walk around the other side, right? I mean, the guy starts to fall over, his intestines fly out, and people are like, well, that's going to be messy. And they walk around it because they don't want to get it on their laps and, or on their jeans. And, and like, what is, what is, what is what's prosperity to that? 
And to be honest, when you live in that world, you have no concept of Aruba, Hawaii, or some other place that you know other people dream of. And then God moved me to a place where other people saved their entire life to go and visit once. And that was where we lived. But the only thing that was missing from that is it wasn't a city. And I'm, to be honest, I'm a city boy. And, and he put us here. How ridiculously cool is that? A guy that likes exotic food. I mean, he stuck us in Camden. You can walk in that little lock market and you can sort of eat around the world in five steps. And hey, a kangaroo burger. That's awesome. And some moochie moochie. I don't even know what that is. Let's try some, you know. And people that are around me, if you're not adventurous, don't go with me to lunch, man, because you'd be there. Oh, no. Can we eat something I know? And, and all of that to say this. It's like, look at This isn't really dangerous. I really, really believe in prosperity doctrine. Here's the problem. I just think if you think what God has to give you is money, you are selling God short on what real prosperity is. You're still living in the ghetto spiritually. I think God wants you ridiculously prosperous. That, And to be honest, to give you money makes you spiritually impoverished would be counterproductive. What God wants is for you to have joy, not happiness. For you to have peace, not some sedation, not some form of mild escape, but rest. And the bottom line is that's real prosperity because what the world's chasing after is a horrible counterfeit. Why would God give us the counterfeit when he's the real deal? And you realize, and all that God says, look at what I want to do is I want to bless you. And that's something that's reliant on some circumstance, but a real blessing. When people look and go, wow, there are really crazy circumstances going on in your life. How could you be like this? And you're like, because I'm blessed. That's why, because I'm blessed. My blessing has nothing to do with my outer circumstances. It's the fact that I'm sitting in the lap of God. How can I not be blessed? In his presence is the fullness of joy. This is Psalm 16. Follow me in the last few on this and we'll bring this to prayer. And I'll make your name great. It doesn't say I'm going to make a bunch of names great. And and, and I want you to realize why this is so huge. I don't know how many people know of Abram as he leaves that town. I don't know how many people in that town were prosperous financially. This I just know. But God speaks to a person who just seems to be an ordinary guy in an ordinary world, and he says, you and you now. I'm going to to use you, specifically you. And I'm going to specifically use you in a place where you're right now currently unknown. No one knows who you are right now. But they will. I'm going to take you. I mean, just, just you. Not the Mass, not the Calvary Chapel, not the... You, specifically... And in the moment the Lord puts your name out, don't you immediately argue with the big butts? You throw your big butt in it to say, hey, but God, but God, but God, just me, God. And it's like as if somehow God didn't make you and he's unaware of exactly who, he, who you are in the first place and what he's dealing with. And yet God in us goes, look at, how about if I use you? I mean, just you. And are you going to be like, like Moses and go, well, you might want to use my brother. He seems a little bit more equipped. Or the person next to me, you should hear them sing or whatever. And God's like, well, no, actually, you know, that moment when God goes, you, and you kind of go, him? God's like, no, stop moving out of the way. Don't make me keep moving my finger to follow you. You. And everything you use to try to disqualify yourself makes you, that makes you an underdog qualifies you all the more, according to 1 Corinthians 1. The point is, is that the less equipped you are to wow the world, the more equipped you are to give God the glory when he does something amazing. And God looks at this guy, who, by the way, we have no reason to believe anyone was wowed by him, including his wife, and he looks and he goes, how about you? I mean, you. No one knows 
where I'm going to send you a place. No, they're going to like Abraham who? Abraham who? Do you honestly believe at that moment Abraham could have had the clue, any any possible fathoming? Listen, any possible fathoming that over 3,500 years later we would be reading about him in a country he's never heard of? Can you imagine? Like, can you imagine? Well, why not you? Why not today? Why not you? If Abram. I mean, why not you? You're young. Jeremiah tried that. didn't work. God called him anyways. You're a person that has a bad past. Isaiah tried that. didn't work for him. God grabbed a coal. Try not the foul mouth thing with God. didn't work out so well for him. I mean, what, I'm not a really good speaker? I freak out. I get, the, I get diarrhea when I think of standing in front of a bunch of people. I think Moses tried that in whatever words he used. Same thing still work. God says, well, good. So you're unqualified. You qualify. I mean, don't try that with God. Where do you go with it? God's not into changing his mind. His gifts and callings are irrevocable. The good thing about it is God says, you... You! Get this through your head. You! Not just you. You! Your name here. Why is you? Set it right. Make your name great. Because I know if, you, if I make your name great, you'll make mine great. How's that for a deal? But here's the one that gets me the most. And if, if, pardon me, but sincerely true. Because among all the other things, this was the one that I could not have possibly put in my docket because as wild and, and flagrant as my imagination is, this is the one, this is the one that's beyond me. Because I know what it's like to be a curse. I mean, sincerely, there's no self-deprecation and it's honesty. I know what it's like for people to encounter me and make the, and their life being made radically worse as a result of it. As a matter of fact, it's very much a part of my testimony for very much a part of my life. But for God to say, look, and I'm going to use you to change the world, I'm like, yeah, I think I'm already being used to change the world, but it's not working out so well. Um, you know, I, I, but for him to say, look, at, um, I'm going to make you a blessing. Have you ever thought about what that means? That means that people are going to bump into you and their life is going to be made better for it. You. You. Your name here. Not just your friend, the person you think is more equipped, but you specifically. You. I call my sheep by name. I know your name. I know what you're about. I know your weaknesses. I know your strengths. I know the things that you really wish you could do better and the things you can't do. And, and those things, by the way, you brag on that you shouldn't. I know all of that stuff. But you, I'd like to make you the kind of individual that people are made better when they bump into you. I want to make you a blessing. And to be honest, I, I, I've never gotten over that. I mean, sincerely, I've never, I've never gotten over that. I mean, when someone says something really kind, sometimes, you know, they're, they're about to ask for money or whatever. But when the people are genuine, you know, and you know, I have kids, I know how that works. But, um, you know, there's moments when someone's like, you know what? Um, I, 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 my life's better because having met you. I, um, I don't have a compartment for that, but praise. I, I really... And he says, I'll bless those who bless you, curses or curse you. In other words, God says, look, at, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take personally anything that happens with you. Your enemies are going to be mine now. How much more of a relationship can you have with someone than that? It's like, I'm going to take you that personally. And then he says this. And in you, all the world will be blessed. I'm going to use you specifically, you specifically, to change the world. 
And then when God says that, we can reason away, well, God probably means something petty and insignificant. I mean, after all, I'll touch the world. I don't know really what that means, but, but he's speaking to a guy that we can all agree changed the world. That's Abram. And what did Abram do to deserve it? He said, okay, I'll go. Is that what he said? How about you? Um, I know we started late. We're wrapping this around, but please, please bear with me a couple minutes. We won't get into prayer. I taught secondary school for a series of years, and we would walk through. Matter of fact, my freshman in high school, 13-year-old kids, 14-year-old kids, would memorize the book of 1 John. And in it we talk about, um, I write this so that you will not sin, and if anyone does not, if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the, the righteous, the propitiation for our sins, and not only ours, but the sins of the whole world. <laughs> and we talk about this incredibly, ridiculously cool court scene, because that's the whole idea of it, where you stand before the, the judge of all eternity, the, the perfect king of everyone, and as you stand before the perfect king, you stand there, and the enemy, who's the accuser of the brethren, stands, and he accuses all of these. And he, this is the one place he doesn't have to lie. I mean, he wouldn't have to make up crimes about me. How about you? I mean, he wouldn't have to say, well, all those times that me and I robbed a liquor store, <laughs> unless you have, um, which I don't, I don't think so. Um, because it, it, would have no, it wouldn't land on me. But he would say, you know what? Let me just tell you about the things he thought and the things he said and the things he felt and the attitude he bumped off and, and all that kind of stuff and the way he emitted that stink among people uh, and, you know, figuratively. Um, my, my, my wife may argue literally, but, uh, you know, that, and I would listen to this and I would feel condemned. I mean, if I listened to this for any period of time and I would say, you're right, you know, in the end of it all, no one's going to stand before God and say, but I'm a good person. Because, I mean, it won't take long for us to be convinced we're, we're in need of saving. It would be wiser for you to do it now. And, and, and then with that, in, in this court scene, you, you're like, wow, you're right. I, I am damned. And then, and then my defense attorney stands up, and that's the whole idea of First John 2. And he says, um, Dad, can I approach the bench? And already things start to change. And then, uh, and then Jesus comes over with the Father, and he goes, well, let's just take a look at that list of charges. And all of a sudden the Father moves this page, and it's covered in blood. And he goes, I don't really see anything here anymore. Because Jesus isn't just my defense attorney because he's a better arguer. He's the one who paid for all of those crimes. If you've not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, I'm about to give you the chance. Man, don't walk out of here without accepting that gift. It's the only thing that makes you innocent before God. And, and he looks at all this and he goes, well, uh, there's no charges left to, to actually lay out. Case dismissed. And I remember telling this to my 14-year-olds in this class. And then I just asked, if, if it were the case and... And the Lord were to say, well, but is there anyone that's willing to testify in any way? If you were a Christian, have you been at least a bold enough one that there would be people that would be able to testify? That at least they, they would say, yeah, I'm sure this person's saved because let me tell you how they've affected my life, that kind of thing. I mean, do you have enough evidence? I mean, because if the Lord, and the Holy Spirit is, if you surrender to the living God, God's going to change you. That's just the bottom line. And I went to sleep that night. And that night I had a dream. And then it was the same court scene, you know. And I'm there. And unfortunately, or fortunately, I was so caught up in the dream at the point, you know, those kind of things where I even kind of would have known the outcome if I was removed from middle, but I was too in it to actually. And I'm like, oh, this really sucks. This guy's really saying horrible things about me. And they're true. And, and things I haven't really thought about in a really long time. And then there's Jesus. He stands up and there's a 
part of me that kind of knows this is the way it's going to work. And Jesus comes up and he approaches the bench and there's this book draped in blood and it's all free. And the father says, is there anyone who's even willing to give evidence of this? And I and there's silence for a moment and you get that really sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach. You're like, oh, this isn't good. And then I hear the sound of a chair moving. It's like, you know, and someone says, I'll, I'll testify um, because I'm here. And I realize I'm standing in heaven. And for somebody to give that testimony is a pretty cool thing. And I'm like, the first time I hear that, I think, thank you, Lord. And then I hear another chair and, and me, me too. And then this deafening noise of an army of chairs all scooting back, me and me and me, me. And I look back, and as far as my eye can see is a sea of people. Now understand, before I knew the Lord, I was in a band that played for umpteen thousand people, and I know what it's like to not see the end of that and just to see seas of people, but I've never seen anything like this. Because every person was standing just because somehow this insignificant in my own eyes dolt that had been used for so much evil, had somehow been a jersey for the King of Kings. And there is a sea of people that says, I'm here because of this. And I just remember I woke up and I was, and I never sleep on my face. My neck's too fat, it's hard for me to breathe. I was on my face and man, my pillow was drenched in tears. I'm like, God, you are so amazing. And I gotta be honest to tell you, until this moment, I've never really thought about the fact that I'm hearing people speaking in other languages and other accents and other things that wouldn't have meant as much to me back where we came from, where the ethnic diversity was hair color, until, you know, until I really realized how what God was setting up for it. But please understand, please, I beg you, this isn't because I'm a pastor. It's because I said yes when he said, will you go? And what's to say yours isn't going to be the same story? Hear me out as we go to prayer. As I read this text, the end of it all is, here's your risk. You're going to leave your identity. You're going to leave your destiny. You're going to leave your security. And somewhat, you're going to appear to leave your sanity. But I'm leaving all of that to cleave. I'm cleaving to Christ. I'm cleaving to the Father. I'm cleaving to His promises. And I ask, why not me? Why not today? Because at the end of it all, God says in verse 3 that the entire world will be made better because of you. The entire world is going to be different because I put you on this planet. And the payoff then in the simplest sense is obedience. Man, that's the payoff in all of this. And I ask, is there enough fire in my veins and faith's passion still shooting through my voice to stand up against those Goliaths still? Those giants? Because... As I get older, I want to have more fight. I want to be the Caleb that says, I'm 85, let's get more land. And I don't want to be the guy that's like, well, isn't there like a Christian retirement community? I'm not, I don't play golf, and I'm, you know, I'm not criticizing that. And you know, it's like, I, I, and I can't watch Oprah. It makes me want to throw something. So, I mean, all that's left is I, I want to be out there 
being around. It's like, let's go, man. Let's go to the battlefield. I don't want to be in this place where it's like, let's all just be kind of insulated and isolated and sing kumbaya. And yeah, isn't it nice that we don't have to touch that nasty, filthy world around us? I want my nails dirty with the lives of human beings because I don't want that sea to end. And I want there, there are many people out there that still need to hear about the truth of Jesus Christ. And there's no time to be monastic. And if, if I am right in all of this, and I truly believe I am, not because of anything I have in me, but the Lord Himself, that darkness is not the, the overcomer of light. It's the absence of it. So when someone says, aren't you in a dark place? Not anymore. And it isn't because I have any inflated or heroic or grandiose view of myself. It's because the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings has somehow in His infinite grace decided, I want to live there. And He looked at me and He pointed. And He says, now, strange as it is, I'm making you a mobile home. Is that alright? I'm putting wheels on you, baby, because we're going to get some racing stripes, because we're going to gain some mileage out of this thing. And when this thing, this body is handed over to the Lord, it's going to be used. I don't want the Lord to take a look at this jersey in the end and go, wow, you kept this really well. I want to see the Lord go, you know, we're going to have to retire this number because there is no way to save this thing anymore. And you know what? I'm doing a pretty good job. Some of it by, by bad choices. Power drinks will probably kill you. But in the end of it all, I, I can tell you this. And this is the way I wrote it. If you can if you just hear me on this, this is my heart as bare and as naked as it can be. I don't want to die telling God, I am sorry, but the gifts you gave me were buried. They were hidden away because in the end, the love that I was supposed to have for the lost humanity couldn't overcome my lethargic, gangrenous, selfish indulgence and the lost world that you bled and died for weren't worth the risk. I don't want to stand before God with that kind of statement. I want to stand before God and have my coattails flaming from the last battle, smelling like a little bit of, of smoke, and say, wow, we made it. That was cool. <laughs> because if this isn't an adventure, we're not living life. Why don't we just put our heads back on our pillow and not get up? Hey, look, I want to pray for you, but I want to pray for me. Because as I read this, that was a statement I wrote in my own heart a year and two months ago. A year and three, four, five, six months ago when I sat before a fellowship of people that I knew were going to freak out when I said, I love you, but it's time for me to be the, to leave. Because I told you God wants you to go. You should expect me to if He tells me to. And, and, and I look now and I, I'm like, am I any more of this now than I was then? Can I still look at the most lost of people and go, you're one choice away from being saved. The gospel still saves the most wretched. Can I still say in my heart and my confidence in that? Because it says this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance that Christ Jesus died to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the chief of sinners, Christ might display unlimited patience, unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on Him and receive eternal life. In other words, what Paul says is, the reason God saved me is so that you couldn't say He wouldn't save you. Do I still believe that? When I look out there and I see people that are like, oh, look at that miserable sinner. And to be honest, even this morning having breakfast with Matt, watching people walk by, 
And we see a man in a fur coat, as disheveled as anything's ever been. And I look and say, but for the grace of God, that would be me. And, and I'm, that's nothing but honesty. I want to pray that we'd be more than a locker room here with no playing field. I've just walked us through, in the most strange as it is, cryptic though long, through the X's and O's. The whiteboard's up, and I'm like, all right, this is what the Lord has. Here's the X, and you're going to, and here's the O, and you're going to, and... Break! If you're going to stand here and go, yeah, got it, got it, got it, and then walk out there and not take that with you, then we are to be the most pitied. Because truth be told, this is supposed to be where we have our locker room meetings. But locker room meetings mean nothing if there's nothing to be played on the outside of this. So I want to pray for you. I want to pray for me. And then I want to set you in teams. Man, grab a couple people around you and pray that God genuinely give you the courage and the fire and the passion and that he puts on your spiritual cleats and we start digging up some sod. Because this world around us here has seen enough of impotent, cultural, mamby-pamby, little sissy thing that they call Christianity that just looks like, and I'm not picking on anyone in anywhere, but just looks like a guy in a robe saying something they don't understand, doing a system they don't even get any of this symbolism for, while the real power of the gospel and the living God somehow lies dormant in the the hands and in the needles of doctors who watch people die around them because they're afraid that someone will be offended if they tell them they want to heal them. We're done with that. I am. Will you pray with me? Oh, Lord God, you are so good. And you call me to go. And you know what? I'm thankful. I'm so, so, so thankful. And I know that I could say, but Lord, what about my family? What about my children? What about my wife? What about the way the world's going to think I'm crazy? What about the fact that they're going to say I left my sanity? What about those things that are supposed to be security? What about those things that are supposed to be the way that I planned out the rest of my life? What about those things that are part of my identity that I say, I like these things about me? And yet, God, you tell us, you tell me, Lord, that hand it over because you've got something better and you won't even show me the blueprints when my hands are full. And, And Lord, in that, I feel like every day I wake up and you show me a little bit more and every day I look and go, ooh, that's good. And God, I I don't want to ever die. And and, and if you planned me to be a 60-story high-rise, I don't want to die 40 stories into it. And say, well, it's taller than most buildings. I want want you to use me in every way you intend. That when we're done, it'll be evident we are done. I don't want to be the guy that sort of plays the game knowing that I need energy afterwards to go and party my brains out when this is the playoffs. And I don't. I realize this is the only game I get to play. This life field in front of me, it's it. It's, it's it. And, and I have no idea whether the whistle is going to be blown today in my life and that will be the end of my breath here or 60 years from now. I just know this that I want to live each day like it's the last two minutes because somehow I watch these games in America of football where it just seems like no one knows how to do anything and then the two-minute warning happens and then they score all these points and I think if they played the whole game like that, they'd clobber the other team. I want to live my whole life like it's a two-minute warning. And, and, and I just know that somehow it's you that's supposed to give me the strength anyway, so why do I have to worry? I, I'm going to spend it. And I have just learned I just can't outspend you. I'm your currency. Spend me wisely and spend me. Spend me, Lord. Spend me. 
in all the very best of ways for eternal consequences. Take me above the, the overcast, Lord, of this particular world and the, the ghetto that I could put myself in and the poverty, Lord, to think that somehow the world has things to offer me that are going to be somehow anyway comparable to the prosperity you offer me and you. And God, I just pray right now for myself and for these precious, beloved brothers and sisters who you bled and died for, that you call by name, that you love and adore and can't stop thinking about. Oh, Lord, today, get our cleats on. And even if we don't feel like we know the game well, even if we feel like we might get hit, I've learned in this this life game we play, we'll get hit on the bench. So we might as well at least get out on the field. Lord, I, I, can I just ask your forgiveness for those moments when I know that you called me to sprint when I jogged? And for those moments to, when you called me to jog when I walked? For those moments when I didn't push for the extra yard? For those moments when I just kind of looked around to see whether or not I was just a little bit better than the person next to me? instead of seeking to conquer, to play to the very best, to, to, to just leave it on the field. God, I just beg your forgiveness, but Lord, in the seeking of that forgiveness, I don't want to repeat it. But I just lay before you my absolute incompetence and inability to do anything of any value other than surrender to you and let you do it through me. So here I am and I surrender. And in that surrender, Lord, I ask you to do such ridiculously cool things this week that I will giggle, that I will laugh, that I will say, I'll look at the scoreboard, so to speak, your scoreboard, the scoreboard of eternity, and just laugh at the score of what you do this week, how you change the world around us. We openly declare darkness is no threat to us. It's only darkness. We openly declare the enemy is no threat to us. We openly declare that that all of the powers of hell are no threat to us. The gates of hell cannot prevail. As long as we are in you, Lord, it doesn't stand a chance. And so, God, stop us from being spineless, fearful, little wimpy whatevers, God, that are just... Christian jellyfish, when you've called us to stand strong as your army, and we are following the King of Kings who created all of this, who's going to destroy with the brightness of your coming the one who stands against you. And God, just give us that boldness and that courage that the world desperately wants from us. We've not shown them. Because we're too busy trying to pretend that we're them. And God, I pray that there be any in this room who have not said yes to your gift. And they're playing games. They're trying to do it on their terms instead of yours. As I seek to surrender my life over and afresh right now to you, may your Holy Spirit convict them to do the same. And I'm going to do something pretty radical. I don't know. I mean, for some people, it's not radical. It depends on what church you go to. But I'm going to ask today, if you just want to ask God for a really rampant and radical thing, for God to just to use you and use you up, I'm going to ask for you to do something I'm going to ask for you to stand with me right now. And what you're saying is, I, I, I want my life to be more than just um, cool with contemporary Christianity, but I want it to be used to the absolute degree. And I'm saying by this, I surrender and I ask for you, Lord, to take me over completely. And if you do that, go ahead and just stand with me right now.
God, I just want to stand right now as an emblem of the fact that I need to stand in this world. I'm not going to bend to the things that others bend to. I'm not going to bow to the things that others bow to. But I want to let you know what you already know. And that is that every part of my heart would do every one of those things unless you intervene. So I'm asking right now, Lord, a very dangerous thing. As I stand among my brothers and sisters, Lord, I'm asking for you right now to commandeer me, to take me over so much so, Lord, that you, res- that you keep from me the opportunity to make those choices. That you lead me not into temptation, but rather, Lord, yank me away from anything that will make me defame you, that, we would, make, that would make me just dis- disgrace your name, but rather, Lord, bring me to those places in the battle where you know the things that you've called me to, to damage hell as much as possible, to empty hell as much as possible. Lord, to drive the enemy far from this land. And so, God, I just pray right now for myself and my brothers and sisters as we stand with you right now. We openly declare ourselves sinners in need of your saving. And you saved us by dying on the cross, Jesus, paying for every one of the things of our filth and shame. And you rose again to offer us a new life, the life that you call us to now to to be where the world will be radically made better because how you use us now in this. So, Lord, we are here for your deployment. Use us as you ordain. But, Lord, just don't leave us alone. Use us in ways, Lord, that we are amazed. Take us beyond anything we could imagine, God. And we want to lay behind anything and all encumbrances, as Hebrews 13 says, Lord. Hebrews 12 says, Lord, everything that keeps us from running the race to win it. So, Lord, rip from us if we won't want to give it up, Lord. All those things that keep us, Lord, from being everything you ordained for us to be. And, Lord, we just pray... That as you continue to write this beautiful book in heaven, Lord, that there will be other Abrahams and they will have our names on it, Lord, and that we will be the people, God, that you use in such radical ways that heaven itself will watch as if it were a primetime show because of how entertaining it will be, Lord, for the way that you change the world around by using us. So, Lord, we say, here we are, we're yours. We surrender to you. We we again confess Jesus as our Lord and Savior, and we thank you for what you've done in this time. But make it more than what happens in this room. Change our life because of it. And we say this, Father, in the name of the one who makes us right with you, Jesus the Christ. Amen.